Ladies and gentlemen, perfect tweet to start off the episode by uh, Jude in London 2. Would be an incredible achievement to be elected leader of your party, become prime minister, kill the queen, tank the pound, get fired all within one menstrual cycle. Unreal girl bossing. The words public enemies Chuck D bring the noise. Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. And you know what hasn't had a good week? The pound. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but you kind of have to at this point. You know, just uh, when, when, when there's no election for two years, you kind of just have to, I don't know, just sit back and uh, enjoy... Enjoy the uh, country around you just uh, slowly burning, you know. Just you just got you just you just have to sit back and uh, go, grab the popcorn and watch the fireworks because um, that's that's all we can possibly do at this point. And uh, you know, apart from you know revolution, any of that kind of stuff. But you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if uh, this country's built for that, uh, built like that. But um, yeah, man, just the just the absolute um, op just level of. Of uh, of of tanking everything to do with your party, to do with politics, to do with the economy, it's just app. It's an outstanding, just um, an, an outstanding uh, level of uh, 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 what's the what's the word negligence? Say you guys, a good bad word. An outstanding level of negligence um, to to everything to do with politics and society in general. It's it's a, it's a marvel to behold. It really is a marvel to behold. So sh- big up Liz Truss. Big up Quasi Quarting. Just um, outstanding levels of fuckery. Um, but yeah, apart from that, you know, what else is there to talk about? I mean, there's been a lot going on this week. Um, this is one of those in a week where I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be like. Yeah, this is only a, this is only like half of what the week could have, the week possibly was, um, in terms of encapsulating it. Sometimes you just can't encapsulate it in five, and uh, you know it is what it is. But um, yeah, um, regardless, we're getting some stuff. Um, happy two hundredth episode, um, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah, it's two hundred. I I feel like I feel like I probably should have done something like random, uh, not random, but like you know special with some planning. But I don't know. I mean, honestly, I've been busy um, uh, doing the uh, doing a doing a doing a little side thing uh, that that may or may not be dropping in December. So um, yeah, you know, just um, keep keep an eye out for that. Um, I'll I'll let you guys know what's what that's going to be um, around November time. Um, but yeah, I've kind of been working on that. So um, I'm just gonna let two I'm just gonna let two hundred be the same or be as be as similar. Um, as the uh, as the first hundred ninety nine, and we're going to talk about some stuff that, as you can imagine, I feel like talking about. Um, we could be talking about, or we could be talking about politics. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm gonna gonna leave leave off that for uh, for for at least a week. Um, but yeah, we have um an art history or art, uh, tech, music, and film. And with that said, format is before we begin. Email to, to this one, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go spin the articles for yourselves and give them a read and help the, uh, and support the writers that make this show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop for the 200th time. Let's get into the show. In a week where Boston Celtics head coach Emu Doka suspended for the 2022-23 season over alleged intimate relationship with a team staff member. Um, this has been the most just absurd story in a lot of ways where it's like, yeah, let's, let's, ban, let's, let's ban this dude from coaching for a year for getting some pum. Oh my gosh, crazy, right? And if it was, if it was non-consensual, then maybe worth it. Um, in terms of suspension, but in that case, it'll probably just be no tolerance fired. 
Um, but there's this middle ground of like suspending him doesn't make sense, and uh, honestly, it's just a bit of a it's a bit of a shit show um, on on all sides. Um, but um, you know, shouts out to Neil Long. Um, yeah, I don't know how don't know how you managed to disrespect Neil Long like that. That's crazy. Um, UK police uh, arrest a 17 year old over the GTA 6 hacking investigation. Um, I think the I think the group that he may allegedly is part of is uh, called Lapsus Dollar Sign or whatever. I don't know how you say it, but yeah, it's a dollar sign at the end of it. Um, but yeah, he's part may allegedly part of a hacker group that's obviously done not just GTA 6 but other stuff. Um, but yeah. Fascinating. Uh, Wolf Hall, uh, author Henry Mantell, dies age 70. Jazz le- legend uh, Ferris Sanders dies age 81. And Giorgio Maloney uh, and the far-right Brothers of Italy. Brothers. It gives off Hulk Hogan vibes, that name, that, that party name. Brothers of Italy um, win Italian general election. So, yeah, guys. Girl boss, come on. God, the girl bossing continues. Fucking hell. Absolute, um, absolutely outstanding. You know, not the fact. Don't, don't, don't pay attention to the fact. You know, she's a, um, she's basically a fascist. Um, and uh, and you know, no, 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 no point looking at that. She's female, female man, female girl boss. Yeah. All right. That's enough of that. <laughs> um, let's start with this uh, tech. So, um, yeah, I found this article very fascinating, um, like opinion piece, so to speak, uh, by uh, Scott Galloway. Um, professor at New York University Stern School of Business. Oh, very fun, uh, very, very, up, uh, very up there. And uh, yeah, just um, it's uh, about uh, tech billionaires. Um, it's called America's Full Idols, uh, simply put, um, via the Atlantic. Um, so yeah, without further ado, let's jump right in. My first job out of UCLA uh, was in the analyst program at Morgan Stanley in the 1980s. Like most of my analysts class, I had no uh, idea what investment banking was, only that we were at the helm of the capitalist bobsled and could make a lot of money. We paid scant consideration to the wider role finance played in society. We were charged with birthing the apex predator, the capitalist species, the public company. Our economic mission, we were told, was noble. We were making money, helping other people raise money so they could invest money so they could make more money. Did you did you get that? <laughs> just just let me know if you didn't get it. Oh, uh, go go rewind. Uh, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 had cemented this ethos in both culture and government policy. At his inaugural address, the president had drawn the battle lines. Quote: In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Unquote. You know, it's it's funny how I mean, just you know, when we talk about Reagan Reaganomics and neoliberalism imagine a politician saying that like a politician in the actual in the you know heading up the government saying government is the problem like he's not wrong government government in most most cases are is is the problem uh, you know eg right now in britain <laughs> but you know the solutions can also be used you know what i mean like so they say they're the problem and then they provide solutions that actually don't solve anything um and or or in this in most cases make things worse uh, be either short term long term excuse me or both it's just funny how politics works eh? anyway soliloquy out of the way uh what was this that in his uh, presentation of american decline labor and government had allied to suppress the shareholder class producing an anemic economy that threatened the freedom to be successful. Reagan moved quickly to end the government's restrictions on American economic might, high taxes on our most uh, productive citizens, over-regulation of business, and the beast of entitlement programs gnawing at the roots of capitalism. The Gipper ripped out liberalism and replaced it with rugged individualism and the, quote, right to dream heroic dreams, unquote. Um, oh, apparently this article is adapted from his forthcoming book, Adrift. There you go. So, there you go. Uh, the results were impressive. When I arrived on Wall Street a few years later, the economy was roaring. Gross domestic GDP grew every year, Reagan's presidency, but one, and inflation fell from 14% to 4%. In an ascending era of shareholder value, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which had been drifting downward since the mid-1960s, doubled. <laughs> Uh, business news and specifically coverage of the stock market became a main street, uh, main street media product and rendered the Dow Jones and later NASDAQ our primary economic indicator. In part, this reflected a material interest. Thanks to 401k retirement accounts, 
mutual funds and later the internet, stock market participation has, has increased from less than a third of US households in the 1980s to about half today. So uh, I'm, I'm not aware of, you know, what 401ks are. I know I've heard of it before. You know, I've, I've, I listen to, um, oh, well, I'm not, I say I don't listen, I don't listen to it. I, I go to sleep to um, American uh, politics podcasts. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of like half listening to it. But I'm, you know, I'm trying to go sleep to it. I know what four hundred one ks four hundred one ks are like retirement things, but is that a, like are they connected to the stock market? So it just purely depends on how the stock market is doing, and that's your four hundred one k. And why is it called four hundred one k? Does everyone get four hundred one thousand? I I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, uh, <laughs> shows how much of a dipshit I can be sometimes. There you go. Uh, we we don't know we don't know everything. That's why we're here, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway. Uh, but how widespread market participation has become is easy uh, to overstate. In truth, this distribution of the enormous appreciation of capital we've enjoyed since I first walked through Morgan Stanley's doors has been uh, enormously uneven. The wealthiest 1% of Americans, uh, Americans hold more than half of the stocks uh, owned by households. Uh, the bottom 9% hold just 11%. How the wealthiest Americans entrench themselves? Through policies that favour the already wealthy while diminishing opportunities for the middle and lower classes. Start with the tax code. Income gained from selling stock in a company is taxed at a lower rate than income gained from actually working at that business. A second transfer from poor to rich. A, a homeowner may deduct mortgage interest on a first and second home while the less wealthy pay non-deductible rent. Why do we get into the tech curve, guys, uh, on, on this? Oh, there we go. We, we're nearly there. These transfers are pitched to the American public as how uh, to get wealthy. When in reality, they describe how to stay wealthy. That messaging is propaganda brought to you by the 10% of people who own 89% of the stocks. Over the past quarter century, one sector has risen to dominance even among the elite. Big tech. And as this sector has accumulated greater and greater economic might, it has invested the profits into influence over policy. In 2000, tech companies spent uh, $7 million uh, courting legislators. 20 years later, they spent nearly $80 million. More than the commercial banking industry did, 62 million, and approaching the lobbying budget of the oil and gas industry, 102 million. Although the average Joe was an effective political prop, Reagan's revolution narrative uh, required a heroic leader. So, as the tide of global economic prosperity lifted most boats, in America we transferred credit for the rise from the labouring masses to the brilliant, opportunistic, or plain lucky individuals directing those masses. The name we found for this modern day saviour was the innovator. Okay, it's, it's good. It was actually a term. Um, I remember during uh, the Black Lives Matter stuff, I saw. I I, I saved this. Um, I saved this. Uh, what's it called? Um, kind of just a screenshot, right? Of like uh, people's roles in society. I might actually just hit up, hit up my gallery right quick. Um, but <laughs> bear with me. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a little uh, look to find it. But yeah, basically it was um, the framework, right? And um, it was like uh, visionaries, builders, caregivers, frontline responders, right? And it's kind of just um, the roles of people, um, uh, storytellers, guys, disruptors, right? And all these people kind of, um, it's kind of like a, a new a new age framework for how people live in society, I guess, and uh, their roles in it. It was interesting, um, but yeah, it kind of reminds, reminds me of that, the innovators. Uh, we've torn down the old gods and replaced them with an idolatry of innovators. And this region, uh, religion is most deeply embedded in the culture of technology. In tech, the idea that success is the result of individual achievement, a mark of great genius, is an article of faith. For, mo uh, for much of my adult life, this was my own mythology of self. That I'd gone from being the child of a working single mother to shopping for private jets. Clearly, I was self-made. The truth is that I'm American-made. I benefited from being born in a time and place of unprecedented prosperity with a host of advantages, most of them circumstantial. Much the same is true of Silicon Valley. Uh, certainly, a unique ecosystem exists there, and the human capital that it attracts is inspiring. But what gets less attention is that the foundation of the valley was built on government projects. The computer chip, the internet, the mouse, web browser, and GPS were all midwifed with tax dollars, not venture capital. Although the conversion of those technologies into private profits took individual vision, it also took millions of hours to work from thousands of engineers and other wage earners, most of whom were the product of one of the largest government programs we have, public schools. 
Our nation once idolized astronauts and civil rights leaders who inspired hope and empathy. Now it worships tech conveyors who generate billions of dollars and move financial markets. To justify that adulation, we made the shareholder returns the sole metric of success, and so the shareholders are the most successful. Uh, we acclaimed the, the power of technology, and so technology has gained the most power. And we lauded the individuals at the head of those tech organizations for their genius. Well, it's not even genius. Like um, Elon Musk gets his shit from uh, from government money, right? He, he gets government subsidies for you know shit like SpaceX, for example, right? So it's not even just him. Pretty much, it's just the fact that he gets government money, and yeah. But anyway, illustrations of our idolatry abound, even in the dry legal filings of publicly traded firms. <clears throat> when Apple and Microsoft filed securities uh, SEC paperwork to become public companies in 1986, respectively, their founders were true visionaries and dominant figures at the companies they created. Yet Steve Jobs' name appeared in Apple S1 filing just eight times. In Microsoft's Bill Gates' name uh, uh, appeared 23 times. Then there's Adam Newman. When his company WeWork filed to go public in 2019, Adam appeared 169 times in its prospectus. Oh, okay. I'm seeing where you go with this. This is interesting. Okay, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm warming up to this. Honestly, the first few paragraphs, I was just like, why are we talking about, you know, Reagan Reaganomics? But I'm, I'm into this now. Like, I'm, like, I'm liking the comparison here between, you know, Steve Jobs being in uh, SEC paperwork eight times and then Adam Newman of WeWork appearing in the prospectus 169 times. That is, that is very... That, that just makes the... Uh, that shows the... Um, um, the uh, what's the word? Um, po polarizing, not polar. The polar ends, I guess, of what it used to be and what it is now. It's like all about the persons. Like I, Adam Newman, will will do this, and yeah. Anyway, uh, many of those references describe the complex. Here we go. Self de dealing transactions he concocted to extract as much wealth as possible from investors. About a month after the S one finally, the IPO was cancelled and Newman was fired. Newman is an extreme example, but the idolatry of innovators is all over recent IPO filings. A, a firm's co-founder and CEO, Max Levchin, shows up in his S1 filing 131 times. Robin Hood's co-founder, CEO, Vladimir Tenev, appears 109 times in his S1. Uh, the name inflation of the big tech CEO class corresponds to his wage inflation. Eight of the ten wealthiest people in the world are current or former chief executives of American technology companies, and their wealth consists almost entirely of shareholdings in these companies. Time's reigning person of the year, Elon Musk, is the richest of all. From 1990 to 2021, the top 1% of households increased their share of the nation's wealth from 24% to 32%. It's never been easier to be a trillion-dollar company. In August 2018, Apple became the first public company to reach one trillion valuation. At the time, its most recently reported annual revenue was $229 billion. In October 2021, Tesla became the sixth company to reach one trillion. Well, I need, I need Jonathan Ross, one trillion. Uh, it later slipped back, but has traded a valuation exceeding one trillion again as recently as May 2022. Each company reached that mark on less revenue than the company before. Tesla arrived in the four comma club with a mere 32 billion in annual revenue. Outside the gilded mansions of the elite, this era of prosperity feels very different. Since the mid 1970s, in income for middle and low income households has been sluggish. Income in 2021 for the bottom quintile of households is up 12% since 1975, compared with the 95% increase for the top quintile. Yes, in some areas of spending, these limited dollars uh, could buy more than ever before. Uh, there have been never been so many different kinds of sneakers for sale, but that's called comfort in when healthcare, education, housing take a, a ever deeper bites of a stagnating income. And that doesn't account for the busted 401ks, second mortgages and general financial oppression that by industry, higher education has levied on lower and middle income households. What turns this from bad to terrible, what makes it un-American, and here we go, un-American, is that these advantages are becoming entrenched. These elites are digging in, protecting their growing fortunes from the risks of the very uh, markets they claim to support. Bailouts, tax breaks and subsidies, there we go, are the tools of entrenchment, literally what I was, I was talking about earlier. For those at the top, our capitalism has become cronyism. Oh, talk about it. Ooh, bars, bars. Rugged individualism on the way up, but socialism on the way down. Outstanding. Outstanding par paragraph right there. That was great. Love that. Value is now so concentrated in the tech sector 
that six companies, Meta, uh, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft, accounted for more than 20% of the S&P 500 by the summer of 2021. Stock valuations used to be at uh, used to be about a company's fundamentals and technicals. Now, they're about storytelling and vision, which the CEO concocts and the media propagates. The result? Shares in virtually bankrupt companies such as AMC and Hertz spiked in huge trading volume in 2021, and three electric vehicle firms, Tesla, Lucid, and Rivian, were together more wo- were together worth more than the rest of the auto and airline industries combined. The fuck? Airline as well? That's crazy. Until very recently, going public implied the transition of a company from a benevolent dictatorship to a republic, where ownership is distributed and decision-making power lies in an elected body, the board. This is less and less the case in tech. Company insiders, usually the founders and principal venture capitalists, are securing unprecedented control of the public companies that employ them. The key to securing this control in the dual, is the dual-class structure. In a regular company stock structure, each share equals one vote. In a dual-class structure, certain shares have more voting power than others. These privileged shares are reserved exclusively for those company insiders, giving them control over the company's operations and insulating them from outside uh, shareholder pressure. In 2019, when I lobbied for Twitter to employ a full-time CEO, Elliot Investment Management signed my letter with a $2 billion pen and secured three seats on the company's board. As in two years later, Jack Dorsey quote-unquote resigned. Uh, Read, he was fired with with dignity. Elliot uh, probably would not have been able to make this change, which will benefit shareholders if Twitter had two classes of shares. Today, 43% of tech companies go public with a dual-class structure. If this smells as though the public markets are embracing autocracy and the power that comes with it, trust your instincts. Uh, how long we got? Uh, three power, four power. Sorry, okay. Tethered all our waking hours uh, to our tech devices, we've become uh, be- subject to the manipulations of those who control the pipes, and their track record for enlightened de- despotism isn't good. Uh, we're anxious, overstressed, and hunched over our laptops, grinding our teeth. Meanwhile, our public and shared spaces risk either neglect and decay or privatization that turns them into playgrounds for the wealthiest few. And the very wealthiest, the billionaire class, whose innovations are giving us this uh, work-live play from home dystopia, will be a million miles away, literally. They're taking their windfall profits and investing in moon bases and Mars retreats. I don't think their vision will ever be realized. Mars is a freezing, airless, irritated rock. Excuse me, uh, but our billionaire class is arrogant enough to burn off the prosperity of our age in a futile attempt to conquer the next one. Char- uh, charting a different course is within our power. In this uh, inaugural address, President Bill, uh, Bill Clinton famously said, quote, There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be killed by what is right with America. Unquote. Those are words that would have fit Reagan's 1981 speech about the business of our nation. For that matter, they would have suited Abraham Lincoln speaking to a broken union or Franklin D. Roosevelt during the Depression. They are words I deeply believe in. Although it's out of fashion, I remain an American exceptionalist. This country is re- <laughs> this country really is different in ways that make it, in words used by presidents too numerous to list, a city on a hill. Um, which is a great TV show, by the way, with Aldous Hodge and Kevin Bacon. Um, yeah, highly, highly encourage you guys to watch that. It's a really good show. Anyway, um... A beacon for the optimistic and the innovative. I often say that optimism is America's superpower, and this optimism really is powerful. Science tells us that it can extend an individual's life by eight years. Imagine what 333 million optimists can accomplish. Okay, so <laughs> that final paragraph kind of just uh, made me laugh, to be honest, because it was just like, here's several paragraphs of why America's shit, and then here's me saying at the end, I'm an American, ex- was it American exceptionalist? <laughs> what the fuck? Bro, you, well, you have no nihilism at all. Like, uh, give me a give me a break, bro. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, American exceptionalism uh, is a is a drug, right? It's 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 a it's an opiate um, to to quell the to quell the worries of uh, the ills the actual ills of America. So it's just like you, you, you know, it's it's just your opiate. It's just like, oh, is America trash? Now America's good, you know. <laughs> that's, what it that's literally American exceptionalism. It's just like is 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 here's a here's a minor worry that uh, America might just be trash, and then you just take a take a toke, and then you're like, nah, America's cool, man. America America's great. Like America's 
uh, uh, stuff. The the ills of America be cured with the good of America. It's like all right, bruv. Like you just it, it's entrenchment, right? So that can I kind of shat on the entire piece right there. I'm not gonna lie to you for me personally. Um, but that was an interesting read in uh, a few ways. I didn't expect it to be so wonky. Um, wonk in terms of uh, the the term wonk, not actually wobbly, that that, that context. Um, but anyway, yeah, shout, shout out to Mr. Galloway on that one. That was uh, that was interesting, even though he kind of uh, took a took a sledgehammer to it at the end. <laughs> So now for something that is, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked about this before, um, especially during the pandemic, um, you know, it was constant calling for, you know, the music industries, you know, li- especially live touring is dying, is dying, is dying. We you, we you, we you, red flag, red flag, red flag. And here we are, 2022, and we've got something like this. So this is by NME, uh, by, uh, by Andrew Trendle. It's called The Exit. UK government warned musicians and crew, quote, could find themselves unemployed en masse. But it's fine, guys. You know, it's got got the exit done. You know, just got it done. Got got it done. For, uh, you know, oven ready. But here we are. Let's get into it. The UK government has been warned again. The musicians and crew could find themselves unemployed on mass after hearing uh, the House of Lords, um, House of the Lords, uh, revealed the damage already being caused by the exit on those wishing uh, to tour Europe. Um, I wonder how many people are actually in that room because um, they, you know, y- you don't have to uh, be in the rooms, right, to, for the for the hearings. Um, I don't know if that's the same as the Commons because uh, I know um, there was like a, a, a comparison photo uh, when it came to like uh, you know uh, MPs' wages and everyone was in there, all the MPs were in there, but then when it came to like you know I don't know child poverty or some shit, like it was just like a few people few people in the room um i don't know if that's the same as house of lords but yeah i just wonder how many people are in the room enemy was invited to a hearing at the house of lords um led by industry insiders and the hashtag carry on touring campaign earlier this month tuesday september 6th uh, where the impact that the new post-exit touring rules were having on the lives and jobs of uk musicians and road crew has was revealed music fans are now being encouraged to write that to their mps to demand action Last year, UK music industry. Uh, there's plenty of there's tons of links on this article, by the way. So um, if you want more information, uh, uh, you know, by all means, get into, get your uh, teeth sunk in. Last year, the music in, uh, UK music industry spoke uh, spoke out together on how they had essentially been handed a no do exit when the government failed to negotiate visa free travel and Europe wide work permits for musicians and crew. As a result, artists attempting to hit the road again after COVID found themselves on the predicted rocky road for the first summer of uh, European touring after Britain left the EU. Finding that the complications of the exit are, quote, strangling the next generation of UK talent in the cradle. Uh, The hearing from live music industry workers at the House of Lords attended by a number of MPs and Lords, but no one from the Conservative Party. See what I mean? There you go. That's exactly what I'm talking about. They don't have to attend but i just don't get it why why it's not isn't every meeting important of importance you know what i mean it, it just so if you can pick and choose i just don't get it it's like um it's exactly the same as um when i realized that uh voters for like um you know for example the uh, screen actors guild awards right they don't have to watch the films right and it's and i'm pretty confident it's the same everywhere else they don't have to consume the art that they're voting on. So why why are you a voter then? Like if you're not going to consume all the things that like if you're if you're if you're not an, if you're not a um, you know if you're an Oscar voter right and you have no idea how to vote for like you know best um, best sound mixing right then don't vote for it right I get that right but I just. If 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 you're Screen Actors Guild, so you're an actor, right? Only need actors get in that, right? Because the Screen Actors Guild is for actors. So what's stopping you? You know what I mean? It just it boggles my fucking mind. And it's exactly the same here. Expect expect is even worse because that's just fucking awards that, um, that you know in the grand scheme of things are arbitrary. This is government policy. <laughs> you know what I mean, and they just choose not to go. No one from the Conservative Party 
in this hearing. That doesn't make sense to me. In the ruling party, Jesus Christ, it fucking irritates me. Okay, uh, soapbox um, off, off the soapbox, sorry. Presenting the main obstacles. Once again, uh, the work permits were creating extra red tape for people to be hired from the UK. That can't, carnets, carnets, okay. That carnets and the lack of clear information uh, was leading to extra expense and confusion. There was unknown how much merchandise could be taken and sold, and that, uh, and that the 90 out of uh, 180 day access rule was having dire consequences and seeing many artists and crew either not hired or sent home from tour. The centerpiece of the hearing came from drummer Steve Barney, who found himself unemployed as a result of the new rule that UK citizens can only stay in the Schengen area for a maximum of 90 days in every 180 days without a special visa. An open letter from Barney read out in the hearing uh, in the hearing has since been shared thousands of times on Twitter. Barney, who has over 25 years of experience playing with the likes of Annie Lennox, Jeff Beck and Sugar Babes, <laughs> Pick up the sugar babes. Uh, wrote that he was thrilled to be invited on tour with Italian artist Gianna Nanini, having lost two years of work due to the COVID pandemic. He was then asked to join Anast- Anastasia um, on tour, having drummed for her uh, for over 12 years and 500 gigs. Sadly, the 90 out of 180 rule would put an end to his plans as he already spent 78 days in the Schengen area. Quote. Despite the best efforts of the production manager, Anastasia's manager, and myself to obtain an extended Schengen visa, we were unable to do so because it turned out such a thing does not exist, he wrote. Once the management came to the conclusion that we that there were no legal means by which I could spend another three months in the Schengen area on another European tour, my offer of work was withdrawn and I lost my job of 12 years, unquote. He continued, quote, <laughs> I'm uh, absolutely devastated, frustrated and angry. The loss of a place in this band is a massive blow to me financially, mentally and creative, uh, creatively. Uh, throughout my entire career, I have travelled freely across Europe without a neck time or counting down my time left. Ultimately, I now feel like I'm an, uh, I am being penalised professionally simply for being British. Today, this is my sob story. However, it will soon be that every other British touring professional, if it's not already. But he then pointed out to a study by Best for Britain that showed the number of British artists scheduled to perform in Europe as part of this year's festival season had fallen by 45% when compared to 2017-2019. The drummer added that without change, Britain's world-leading touring artists and crew are going to find themselves unemployed en masse because it is easier and cheaper for touring productions to employ foreign personnel who are not subject to the same restrictions. Echoing the call for a cultural passport to prevent these problems, Barney wrote that, uh, quote, we urgently need a single Schengen-wide visa restoring British tourism and professionals' ability to work. Not only is mine a British job that has been lost, but as, a Europe, but as European tours typically include the UK, I've even lost a British job in Britain for the UK leg of the tour. Uh, he added, I am apprehensive about the future, as we can no longer compete on a level playing field with our European counterparts. We are no longer competing on quality We've been undercut by necessity, if not convenience, unquote. A letter was then read out in the hearing from Anastasia's manager, echoing these sentiments, and that they had no choice but to replace Barney with a new Finnish drummer. Uh, this, this is a British job that has been lost to Europe purely to an unnecessary bureaucratic roadblock, the letter read. The letters were read out by Barney's close friend and pendulum guitarist, uh, Peridou Ap... Oh, fuck, my mum's gonna... Oh, my mum's gonna roast me for this. Peridou Ap Gwyned... Uh, who told of similar woes from colleagues on a recent Iron Maiden tour and concluded, quote, uh, managers uh, are now actively uh, looking for musicians and crew with the EU passports. Uh, this, the British passport, is about as much use as a fart in a spacesuit. <laughs> love it, love it, great quote. Uh, Ian Smith spoke to the, spoke of the knock-on impact that such matters were having on UK standing as a launch pad for live music and tours. Another quote. Often American bands and other third country uh, national bands used to come to the UK and use it as a launch pad to go to Europe to work. He told the hearing, guess what? UK technicians and crew are seen to be uh, among the best in the world. Now, because it's too difficult, they cannot bring in crew from the UK, so they're flying directly to the EU to launch. Those technicians and crew that were going uh, to go on tour for three months around Europe and generate GDP for the UK have now lost their jobs. That's the bottom line. Singer-producer and promoter Pat Fulgoni 
uh, also spoke at the event about how the exit was likely to damage UK standing as one of the leading exporters of music as well as take work away from thousands of skilled uh, UK workers and artists. Uh, he himself losing a lot of income from opportunities abroad. Um, if there's if there's more quotes, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it here. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a few more quotes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna finish up in, on this one because you know it's kind of one of those reporting articles where they just you know have a bunch of quotes and they're kind of saying obviously the same thing. So I don't want to just regurgitate regurgitate. Um, but yeah. Let's uh, get on with this quote. Uh, As an artist, I now find myself on universal credit because I can't afford to survive for music. He said, I've been in the game for 25 years. That's not a sob story. That's just reality. There are a lot of people like myself who have left the industry and just gone, it's over. I've had enough. I can't look after my family. He continued, particularly the youth and people from more disadvantaged backgrounds and in genres like grime and emerging styles that we uh, should be supporting. They seem, uh, they just see music as a pipe dream and not an opportunity. They think there is no way that they're ever going to get uh, to experience what I used to get up to, which was uh, get in a van with a band, tour Europe, develop my craft and earn money from it. That's a massive problem now. We are losing our position in the world. We are not being taken seriously as an industry internationally and we're not uh, and we're too much hassle. I was looking uh, at getting a tour together and realized that I'm just not worth the effort uh, when compared with bands from Germany or France. Uh, there's just too f- uh, too much red tape and it's too expensive for me to sort out. Um, so there's also quotes from James Kennedy, who's a rock solo artist, DJ, producer, podcast host, and an owner of a record uh, label. Um, so there's a quote from him. Uh, there's also a quote from, uh, oh, here we go, some MPs present, including Labour's Kevin Brennan, um, talking about that. Lord David Hannay, um, talking about the European Affairs Committee. Um, and yeah, I mean, Jesus Christ, bruv, and that's kind of the end of it. So yeah. If you want more paragraphs, you want to go dig into that, go dig into that. But yeah, you know, point made. And um, it's just sad. It's just sad how creative jobs are pipe dreams. You know, it's it should it should be a it should be a career, not just a you know not just a thing that you know rich people do. You know what I mean? It people should be able to work as tour technicians and stuff like that. People should be getting these opportunities, but they're not. Honestly, I feel like as a creative entity, um, I don't get. I just don't understand why um, the government just decide to feel that as if culture just doesn't matter, um, as if it never. As it, even even from a financial perspective, a perspective, as if it doesn't bring money in. You know, we've talked. I've talked about that on this show several times um, over the years, and it's just like they they it brings in money. What the fuck are you talking about, UK? music and live music and um all that you know they make money so i'm I'm wondering where where the fuck they go for this shit you know i mean where, where do they come up with these decisions of just like yeah let's um let's, let's completely gutter uh let's completely gut this whole entity and whole part of um british culture and uh and jobs you know it's not just a cultural thing it's, these, are, these are just people that just work People that just work with cables for a living, you know what I mean? Shit, shit like that. It's just, that's all it is. And they just decide to go, you know what? Fuck, yeah. No, fuck it. No, nah. Nah, not important enough. It's just it's just sad. And um, yeah, I, I just don't see what what the government is playing at, especially on this front. Um, yeah. Okay, so this one's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Avatar, the film, um, James Cameron, has uh, been re-released um, in cinemas and in, in preparation for the sequel that is finally um, uh, uh, fi- finally showing signs of actually um, happening um, after over a decade of uh, development and announcements of Oh yeah, it's, gonna, it's not just going to be a sequel, there's going to be two more sequels on top of that. And it's just like, okay, do you want to focus on the second one first? Instead of just locking in three and four as if, as if the second one's already done. Um, but yeah, um, and the first one has been re-released. Um, and I uh, found this review from uh, Bil- Bilge? Bil- Bilgeabiri or Bilge- Bilgeabiri. I'm sorry if I butchered. I most likely butchered it in some way. 
Um, and uh, it's called Sorry But Avatar Still Rules. So I'm of the opinion, just to full disclosure, that I feel like Avatar of the of the time, and you know, thinking about it now, I haven't seen it since I haven't seen it in years, but um, you know, I feel like it had a uh, a huge impact. Um, I feel like it deserved the 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 gross money that it got. To be honest, I feel you know, I feel like it completely deserved it. <clears throat> and um, you know, especially compared to other blockbusters that are out now, definitely uh, de- deserves um, the money it got. Um, and uh, you know, and while the story isn't that great, you know, at least it was um, for once against American imperialism, uh, completely against it. And visually, it was outstanding. You know, visually, it was you know uh, ahead of its time in some ways. Um, but anyway, this is kind of going to be a gas review, as you can tell by the title. Um, but uh, I I, f- I feel like there's just too many detractors for this film. I feel like yeah, people just shit on it, shit on it just to sake of shitting on it. Um, but anyway, let's get into it. <clears throat> uh, for all its technical, for all is technical expertise and storytelling prowess, James Cameron might well be cinema's master of the vibe shift. <clears throat> like that. I still remember the week in 1997 when Titanic went from being thought of as an incoming disaster, uh, one that was going to take two major studios down with it, to being thought of as a blockbuster that would remind everyone why we kept Hollywood around. The tie similarly turned on Avatar back in 2009. For months, so many of us expected a much-delayed, overindulgent monstrosity from a filmmaker who was clearly living in his own head and had nobody to say no to him. I recall Dana Goodyear's epic New Yorker profile that depicted Cameron geeking out over seemingly imperceptible VFX details. Uh, is a big brackets here. That fucking rocks. Look at the gill-like membrane on the side of the mouth. It's transmission of light. All the secondary color saturation on the tongue. And that maxilla bone. I love what you did uh, with the translucence of the teeth and the way that the quadrate bone racks the teeth forward. Yeah, I I got none of that. Um, And then we saw the damn thing. After the film's first brain-melting all-media screening at Lincoln Square IMAX in New York, suddenly all anybody wanted to talk about was Avatar. The rest is history. As As it was with Titanic, as it was with Terminator 2 Judgment Day, the word went forth and the word remains never underestimate James Cameron. One consensus similar sea change for uh, coming for Cameron's much-delayed sequel, Avatar The Way of Water, which after years of false starts and date changes is now set to revive this December. For years, Avatar, the uh, b- both the extent, extent, extent original, um, <clears throat> and this ever-so-slowly approaching follow-up has been the butt of jokes and narrow-minded hot takes, the most prevalent one being that the film ha- has left no pop-cultural footprint that silly take, of course, contains its own rebuttal. If Avatar is so forgotten, how come, new, uh, how come some new person needs to remind us every week that it's so forgotten? <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay. It's kind of is an Eminem uh, parallel. I feel like I can make there, but I won't. Uh, perhaps more importantly, to play the pop culture uh, footprint game is to play right into the hands of corporate IP overlords who have stuffed us full of second and third rate Star Wars and Marvel and DC offerings for the past decade or so. Uh, no, there haven't been dozens of Avatar sequels and spin-offs and reboots and TV shows and streamer series. Hulu is cur- not currently working on an origin story for the house tree, home tree. And there is, as far as I can tell, no Disney Plus animated series following the adventures of a family of Thanators. This is a good thing. Let Avatar be Avatar and let a sequel succeed or fail on its merits. And not on whether it fits into an exhausting and inane extended universe or whether it sells enough lunchboxes. But like I said, a shift is coming, and recent months have seen a massive surge of interest in Avatar Way of Water. Perhaps because people have suddenly begun to care about movies and the theatrical experience again. Now to prime for the sequel, Avatar itself is back in theatres, which remains the ideal setting in which to see it. Especially in 3D, as it's one of the few productions to use the technology properly. In fact, after the unprecedented success of Avatar, Hollywood spent so much time trying to retrofit big releases into 3D that they all but killed off the technology. Uh, maybe that's another measure of Avatar's pop culture impact, or the movie graveyards filled with wannabe blockbusters that couldn't live up to the promise of Avatar. Other failures can be a measure of your success too. Uh, one of the side benefits of there not being dozens of other Avatar properties out there is that watching Avatar again after all these years, one realises just how special it is. All that fussing over maxilla bones and gill-like membranes, it turns out, pays off. Uh, Cameron and his artists have so lovingly imagined the moon of Pandora that every shot of the film contains new wonders. 
One can lose oneself in this world, and as I recall back in the day, many people did. No joke, there were reports of people experiencing depression after leaving the film because Pandora was too real, too enticing, too beautiful. A term for it began to stick, post-avatar depression syndrome. I do remember that, I do distinctly remember that. I remember there was like a phone line for, for people um, for that specific thing. And I was just like, damn, that's just, that's some real shit um, for people to have that. And I don't know anybody that's done that for Endgame or Infinity War, you know? So it has its merits in a lot of ways, I feel. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a dick rider for Avatar, to be honest. You know, I don't watch it every every day. You know what I mean? Like I said, I haven't seen it in years. Um, but I just I just remember being remember it remembering it being memorable. I remember it, uh, you know, smashing the box office. And and in hindsight, rightly so. Again, rightly so. It, visually, it is outstanding. The story may be meh, but what blockbuster doesn't have a meh story? You know what I mean? We don't watch blockbusters for you know um, uh, indie indie uh, uh, art house level storytelling. We don't we don't do that. That's not what we're here for. We're here for visuals. We're here for extravagance. And Avatar is extravagance in a lot of ways. But at least the artists actually give a shit, and they're actually given the time to give a shit unlike drum roll please every marvel and disney uh thing uh, ip that has come out in the past like year um so anyway cameron's special power has always been his ability to mix tech heavy ma- uh, macho bluster with a kind of earnestness that would be corny in lesser hands i once called him a flower child who speaks fluent badass he he, he peoples his movies with believable tough guys who uh, talk like they know what they're doing and handle their guns the way they're supposed to. There's no pretension or con- condescension with such characters, even when they're cartoonish villains as they uh, as they are in Avatar, or when they're comic relief. Think back to Bill Paxton's uh, blustery Hudson and Aliens, whose mixture of muscle-bound bravado and scaredy-cat whining is one of that film's most memorable bits. In some ways, he's the most relatable character in the movie. You can tell Cameron on some fundamental uh, level likes these guys. He did, after all, co-write Rambo First Blood Part 2. But his heart with the romantics and the dreamers. Uh, his heart is with the romantics and the dreamers. The machismo... Temp- I love that word, machismo. Great word. Uh, just it's, It looks it looks a pe- it's aesthetically a pleasing looking word and saying it is machismo. It's great. Uh, it's a wonderful word. Uh, tempers and authenticates the sentiment. Uh, and vice versa. The Abyss is a seafaring, cool as shit action movie. That winds up being a, about a divorced couple reconciling. Titanic is an achingly heartfelt teen romance played out against a disaster ruthlessly recreated with the precision of an engineer. And uh, Avatar is a movie about a gruff can-do grunt who learns to com- uh, commune with nature and falls for a Navi princess. It's also, let's not forget, a fairly blunt allegory for the US invasion of Iraq, complete with call-outs to bushier rhetoric like shock and awe, and the villain's declaration that only security lies in preemptive attack or fight terror with terror. But this wasn't actually uh, but this was actually part of the course for big action movies during this era. See also George Lucas' Star Wars prequels, which were even more politically pointed. Good point. Uh, the general premise of the picture is, as everybody and their mother have reminded us, not new. The director himself referenced Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars novels while making it. And the conceit of the soldier who goes native is its own subgenre by now, to be found in everything from Lawrence of Arabia to Dances of Wolves. And hey, let's not forget that film that seems to borrow from Terence Malick's The New World too, not to mention Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Avatar may be derivative, derivative? Yeah. Uh, but it's not insincere. Cameron uh, feels every beat of the story along with his viewer. He lets us discover Pandora through Jake Sully's eyes, uh, at first as a fearsome, terrifying place, then as a land of unimaginable awe and delight. There's nothing pro forma about Jake's falling for Zoe Saldana's Nictiri. Cameron's a little in uh, Cameron's a little in love with her himself. When our heroes ride their banshees at breakneck speed down a cliff, we can feel Cameron living viscerally through his creation. It's every nerd's dream to find a beautiful mate. Preferably with fangs with whom you can race your magic flying dragons in a distant wonderland. It's so clear that Cameron wants the Na'vi's world of bioluminescent veins and mystical spirits to be true. He wants it to be true so much that he's created an entire science for it. His aforementioned almost parodic uh, attention to detail isn't just the obsessive rantings of a billion dollar Hollywood taskmaster. It's that of someone who's reversed the typical artistic exchange of filmmaking in which artists create worlds for audiences to lose themselves. 
in Cameron's case, one suspects that the realer it is for us, the realer it will be for him. So the protagonist of Jake Sully, Sully, uh, the soldier torn between duty and the enticing wonders of a mystical world, feels quite personal for Cameron too. Not just in the tension between badass who becomes hippie crusader, but also in the idea of a dreamer who must learn to let go of what he once believed was the real world. Whereas most movies would have their heroes ultimately reconcile themselves with reality, Avatar again goes in the opposite direction. It urges us to leave all that behind. It becomes an allegory for Cameron's own inability to let go. And it's clear he still has them. He's reportedly working on four sequels. Long may he dream. He ain't, he ain't doing those four films, I'm sorry. It, it, there's no way. There's no way. If it's going to... How how old is James Cameron? Yes, let's look at that right quick. James Cameron. Uh, Cameron. There we go. Um, this dude is 68 years old. Okay. So it took him over a decade to do the second film. There is no fucking way. <laughs> There's just no way. There's no way he's getting four more in. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. I would love for it for ha- I'd love it for him. Uh, I'd love it. Oh wait, he's Canadian. I didn't know that. That's that's, fa- that's fascinating. Um, but yeah, I just can't see that. I can't see. I can't see him getting four more in unless he's handing off the reins to. I don't know if he has like a right hand man or something like that that can literally just take the keys and run with it and they know exactly what he's thinking excuse me exactly what he's thinking and they have the you know they're you know uh that they have the exact same mindset uh towards the films and the and the ideas and whatever and the same dedication i'm not sure if he has someone like that um but yeah there's no fucking way he's getting four in at six at the age of 68 if he's gonna take 10 years uh plus to do every single one um but i don't know zooming out a little bit and i'll leave it here but um Zooming out a little bit, I just find this very, um, I, I find it kind of cool, you know, I kind of respect it, um, you know, you can, you can kind of make this, um, you can kind of relate this to someone like, you know, Kanye, right, who, um, is clearly just doesn't have people that say no to him, and, you know, does what the fuck he wants, right, da 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 and even recently he, um, said that, um, finally, um, uh, uh, agreed that Sway had the answers all those years ago, and he's you know he left Gap and uh, I think Adidas as well, and he's gonna try and go it alone, do it himself, do everything himself, and um, you know, <laughs> in some cases I respect that, right? Um, I don't know if that'll if he'll pan out, you know what I mean? Good luck to him on that front. But the reason I compare him with someone like James Cameron is because you know they just they just they get their creativity done, right? Um, regardless of what the what you know people quote unquote above him uh, above them are saying, right? And that can also be a bad thing, right? Um, th- there's a lot of artists about that just clearly have too many yes men, and uh, you know they just embarrass themselves and they produce garbage, right? Um, you know I haven't listened to a Kanye album since Jesus is King, right? So you know that's that's where I come from on that front, um, but. I don't know, man. I just feel like there's something different when it comes to James Cameron to have somebody that can uh, create the... has so much uh, cachet, reputation um, to do these things. Like, who else... Who else is getting this much rope? You know what I mean? To make the, to make films like this. You know? It's just... It, I would love for this to happen... Um, and I guess it's comparing to you know it's made obviously this article made comparisons to you know the MCU, Disney, and the and the recent model of you know blockbusters, films, everything else streaming right, and link this to you know how the VFX artists um in recent years have been you know crunched to fucking oblivion, um and it and it turn and it turns out you know that when you crunch VFX artists and force them to rush shit oh my gosh the visuals look shit right but then you watch avatar and it's just perfection you know just the attention detail is absolutely it's it's engulfing it's immersive and i want that for everything i want that for all of art and you can't get that in a year span you can't get that by timetabling everything into a space of five years and into these quote-unquote phases and stuff like that and quarterly reviews you can't do art like that you can't so in some ways i respect james cameron a whole lot um for even just having the ability to do this and for stubbornly doing this and just focusing 
uh, and just focusing 100% on it and sticking to it. Um, again, I don't see him doing four more. Um, he'll probably be dead by the time he, uh, by the time, I don't know, maybe the third one comes out. I don't know if he'll get two more in after that. Um, but yeah, man, well, not dead, but, um, you know, just, um, just, I guess, unable to, uh, put in the work because I'm assuming there's a lot of work put into it physical anyway. Um, but yeah, you know, I would love, but with that all said, I'd love the, I love the ambition that I feel that I feel that ambition. I see that. And I respect it. And I hope he pulls through with it. I really, really do. Um, if you don't like Avatar, you don't like Avatar. But hey, man, you got to respect. you got to respect the artistic integrity that that man puts on his work. Okay, let's finish time stretch. Uh, we got um, a, a piece about a photo book that's coming through um, next month, uh, and uh, yeah, it's very fascinating. So I found this article a few weeks ago. I've had it ba- uh, banked. Um, so yeah, I wanted to give it a spin. This is by Sean O'Hagan. It's called "Sisters of the Revolution: The Women of the Black Panther Party." Um, this is via the Guardian. Let's jump right in. Stephen, uh, Stephen, Stephen. I don't know. Stephen Shames uh, had just turned twenty uh, when she. Uh, when he visited the headquarters of the Black Panther Pie in Oakland, California, and showed some of his recent photographs to Bobby Seale, co-founder and main spokesman for the organization. Though Shames was, though Shames was still uh, finding his way as a photographer, Seale liked what he saw and decided to use some of the pictures in the Black Panther newspaper. So it was that a young white guy from Cambridge, Massachusetts, became the official chronicler chronicler um, of the Black Panthers from 1967 to 1973, documenting their community programs, protests, rallies, arrests, and funerals at close hand. Quote, the Panthers were never a black nationalist organization, says James, now 74. They formed alliances with many black writers and activists, and the whole legal team was white. They were not out to get white people, as the American government insisted. They were, revolu- they were a revolutionary organization who worked with anybody they felt was sincerely trying to change the system to benefit poor people and create a more just society. Since that time, Shames has published two photo books about that struggle, The Black Panthers and The Power to the People, The World of the Black Panthers, as well as several other titles uh, that attest to a life of activism and deep engagement with his subjects. Next month, he will complete his trilogy on that era with a book that, as he puts it, is long overdue. Co-authored with former Black Panther Erica Huggins, who is now a writer and educator, Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party is a dynamic visual and oral testament to the crucial role played by women in a revolutionary group whose figureheads, with few exceptions, were men. In her foreword to the book, the activist and author Angela Davis uh, points out that 66% of the membership uh, of the Black Panthers was female. She writes, quote, because the media tended to focus on what could easy, what could be easily sensationalized, there has been a tendency to forget uh, that organizing work that tr- uh, truly made the Black Panther Party uh, relevant to a near era of struggle for liberation was largely carried out by women. The book was, is a powerful record of an intense period of grassroots activism and political engagement and counter-narrative to uh, the one propagated by J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, who called the, Black, uh, who called the Panthers the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. Like the Black Panther, uh, men, the women uh, members, tended to look both stylish and dramatic, often sporting afros and at times wearing the black leather jackets and berets that were the, black, uh, that were the Panther uniform. Uh, quote, most, uh, most young people are photogenic, says Shames. But the Panthers were charismatic. It was something to do with the pride that they instilled in their people. Rather than treating them as a problem as the government did, they gave them a sense of faith and pride, I, and I really think that shines through in the photographs. Shames' is, uh, extraordinary access allowed him to capture fly-on-the-wall shots of young women at protest rallies, but also carrying out the on-the-ground organising of various Black Panther community initiatives, including the Free Breakfast for Children program, the People's Free Ambulance Service, and the people's free medical clinics, which offered medical care, including sickle cell anemia testing. Though the series is punctu- punctuated uh, by images of well-known female members, Kathleen Cleaver, 
uh, law professor and former communication secretary for the party, Elaine Brown, a prison activist, writer and former chair of the party, and the late Afini Shakur, political activist and mother of rapper Tupac Shakur. Most of the testimonies come from ordinary black women whose youthful engagement with the Black Panthers remains the most empowering moment of their lives. Carol Henry, who joined the Oakland chapter of the Panthers, recalls, quote, I joined the BPP when I was 20 years old. I lived in the, a part of town where the free uh, breakfast for school children program ran. We got up at 3am. It was a real mission, but it was beautiful. We gave those children a full breakfast every day. Cooking that breakfast was the most memorable part because everybody got up so early and everybody worked together. Another woman, Barbara Easley Cox, who was uh, in the Philadelphia chapter, chapter, remembers, love is what tied me to the party, exemplified how I understood love. And that is, you have to love people to serve them. I was so loved, so blessed on this earth because of my sisters, all of us who came into the party. It's lacking today when I look out on the landscape, this landscape in America. As co-author Erica Huggins wrote the introductory essay in Track Down, as she puts it, uh, quote, uh, the women who were there and whose individual testimonies we could use to evoke how extraordinary that time was for many of us. Huggins' own moment of uh, political awakening uh, was uh, seismic. Aged 18 and a student at Lincoln University in Philadelphia, she picked up a copy of radical left magazine Ramparts, and saw a photograph of a young black man strapped to a hospital gurney with a bullet wound in his stomach. Next to him, a policeman stood grinning at the camera. On reading the accompanying report, she found out that the young man was Huey P. Newton, a co-founder of the party, uh, who had authored the party's 10-point manifesto with Seal in 1966. I studied that picture, uh, the picture for some time, she recalled years later. I didn't have tears for it. Uh, I was so appalled. The following day, she left a note for her friend and fellow student John Huggins that read, I'm going to California if I have to walk. I'm going to find Huey Newton and work in his defense. Are you coming? The pair subsequently drove across the country to Los Angeles, where they joined the local Black Panther chapter, which then compromised around 20 members. They were married soon afterwards and initially worked at whatever task was necessary, answering phones, selling new papers, writing letters to politicians, and talking to potential financial donors. Not long after their arrival in California, they attended the funeral of 17-year-old Bobby Hutton, who had been killed in, uh, in, in disputed circumstances during a shootout between the Panthers and the Oakland police. Uh, quote, The person waiting in line next to me pays, to pay his respects was Marlon Brando, says Huggins. He looked as heartbroken as I felt. The killing was as uh, was an aug- augury? Augury. Okay, interesting word. I don't know what that is. Um, in January 1969, her husband, who had become leader of the Los Angeles Black Panthers, was assassinated on the campus of UCLA by alleged members of a black nationalist group, the US organization. The killing was thought by many in the black community to be linked uh, to the COINTEL program that was being conducted clandestinely and illegally by the FBI against the Black Panthers. In December that year, Black Panthers Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were killed in an FBI orchestrated raid on Hampton's apartment. Widowed with a three-week-old daughter, Huggins moved to her husband's hometown of New Haven, Connecticut, and alongside Kathleen Cleaver and Elaine Brown organized a branch of the Black Panther Party there. In 1969, she was arrested alongside Bobby Seale and charged with murder, kidnapping, conspiracy, but after a lengthy trial, charges were dismissed in May 1971. Quote, The word conspiracy was used a lot at the time, she says, now calmly, we spent time in a jail for murder, for a murder we did not commit or have anything to do with. The system uh, then, as now, was punitive. Uh, we were punished before we even entered the courtroom, and their aim was to keep us in prison forever. Unquote. Did her time in prison le- uh, dent the sense of optimism and empowerment she had experienced when she joined the pa- Black Panthers? My optimism was dented by my husband being killed, she replies and by not being able to see my daughter except for a single hour every Saturday. But I chose not to let it break my spirit. When I was in solitary and grieving, I taught myself to meditate in a way that brought me into a deeper focus, so that when I went to court, I could could be really present. It's a practice I have kept to this day. Huggins insists that her experience was not exceptional, and that it, quote, helped me uh, help the women I contacted to tell their stories, because it's it's hard sometimes uh, to go back. Alongside James's uh, uh, powerful images of a moment of black activism that echoes through the decades to this day, uh, these, those stories evoke a time in which young black women experienced life-changing personal empowerment and collective possibility. Wow. So in this, um, I'm reading the text, obviously, and it says, experience life-changing, 
no spaces in between that. <laughs> just zero spaces, just one big word. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, these are not war stories, says Hoggins, who spent 14 years as a Black Panther, making her the longest-serving woman in, here, in their history. They are stories of service to humanity. Uh, the reason they are so striking, touching, and inspiring is because you can sense how beautiful and alive uh, the women were in that moment. Excuse me. Every function of the government that uh, could do us do harm to us did so, but we kept stepping out and stepping up because we were giving our communities what had never been given. I think all the women in the book realized that because they can remember how great they felt back then, what they learned, and what was indelibly, in, indelibly, indelible, indelibly, I think that's how you say it, imprinted on their minds and in their hearts. The book is our legacy. Ay, ay, ay. All right. Um, wow. That was really good. I just really kind of want to spin it now. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the um, I'm looking at a uh, link for this. Um, it's only 35 quid. So I don't know, man. I might, might be seeing what the trilogy's saying. I'm, I'm not going to get every. <laughs> I'm not going to get all three if they're worth that much. But um, yeah, that might be uh, something worth a. Uh, uh, worth doing. That'd be that'd be kind of cool to uh to to have. Um, I need. To, I'm, I want to start collecting photo books. You know what I mean? I, I want that. I, I like that kind of shit. Um, I remember I um uh I was in I was in London um uh, for for well not not for the specific thing I'm talking about here, but um, I was in London one time uh t- to meet some friends later in the day, and I just got there early and um. Uh, there was a there was a protest going on um, uh, outside, obviously you know number ten Whitehall, da da da, and it was about the Biafran uh, genocide, I guess. Um, and uh, I, I've put it on my I've put it on my photography uh, site, uh, CRT dash photography dot com and make dot com, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was I I don't I don't take stuff like that. I don't I I rarely do. I I, <laughs> I, I haven't since you know what I mean like I've I've never put my I've never been in those kind of situations before, but um, you know, I was I was reading up on the uh, uh the Margot Jefferson, I think, uh, I think, I think that was her name, uh, article from a few months ago that I took, uh, that I did on this pod, and um, I was reading that, and I was just like, damn, that, that, that's that's crazy, it's so cool. But um, anyway, in general, I just want to get more photo books because um, I feel like they're they're always nice to have i guess and you know they you know the last forever and you could just open them up and see them get some inspiration i feel like it's beneficial but um, a lot of them cost a lot i feel um but anyway regardless of that ladies and gentlemen i'll leave it there from the fifth end podcast network i've been trying to tell been what's good intro music has been too much by vanilla thanks to chill music for the bts track you find both their links in the full show notes thanks to Nappy high Friend of Ivy Nappy Hire for the BCU's charismatic for news to do. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. Bye until the next time. Take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.